Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth in Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jeeks Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, hop on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. As always, whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. Featured in this episode is music consultant and career coach Tom Vickers, who was a guest a few months back to discuss his role as George Clinton's Minister of Information during the 1976 to 1980 peak years of the Parliament Funkadelic Empire. Given his extensive experience and knowledge beyond P-Funk, we decided to connect once again to discuss other aspects of his career in the music industry. Having spent parts of five decades behind the scenes of a notoriously turbulent and sometimes decadent industry that has undergone major changes during that time, Vickers candidly and colorfully tells what living that life was like. In three segments, he shares the inner workings of music publishing, artists and repertoire, or A&R, as it's called, and putting together compilation packages. Along the way, he also closes the loop on some P-Funk matters, talks Roger Troutman, Billy Gibbons, American Idol, and more. And now, here's part two on A&R, or artists and repertoire. Hello, welcome again to Truth and Rhythm. I am once again pleased to welcome to the program Mr. Tom Vickers, behind the scenes music industry expert. Last time Tom talked to us quite a bit about music publishing, and today we're going to get into a little bit of A&R, artists and repertoire, and talk about some of the compilations he's worked on. Tom, once again, coming to us from Los Angeles, how's everything? Rainy day uh, here in LA, but we need the rain, so I'm, I'm glad, uh, ready to jump into it. Um, I think we left off a little bit the other day when I was working at I'd, I'd left my job at Alma Irving Music Publishing and I'd gone to work at Capital uh, doing more the R part of the A&R equation and finding songs for Hart, Tina Turner, uh, Dave Edmonds, uh, you name it. I mean, a lot of the body rate, a lot of the Capital acts. Um, at the time I was there, uh, the head of Urban promotion was a guy named Step Johnson. And I first met him when he was a regional guy in, in Texas for AM. And we worked together at AM. And then when I went to Capitol, he was there. And he and I had a really good rapport. And he understood that even though I was a white guy, I I understood black music, black culture, black people, how to work in that world. So he enlisted me to do A&R, and I might have mentioned this as well the other day, on this album by Peebo Bryson. And Peebo at the time was coming back to Capitol after a long run there. And um, I I forgot where he got signed, but he went someplace else and came back to Capitol. And he was uh, excited about being back there because his catalog was there, and they were excited about that as well because they wanted to sort of relaunch him. So I was called in to work on this album 
And the producer on this album was a guy named, uh, I think it was Dean, hold on. Yeah, Dean Gant, and he called himself Sir Gant. Um, he was a, sort of a keyboardist, a ranger guy out of Atlanta, good friends with Peebo. And um, sounds like a hip hop moniker. Yeah, yeah. I think I might have mentioned last time that uh, in meeting with Peebo, and I had nothing but respect for him because phenomenal singer on a par with Jeffrey Osborne, Luther Vandross, all the great singers of that era. And I was um, one of those people who believed in having five radio hits on a record. That was my goal on an album, to have five singles that could go to various formats. Didn't have to always be urban. It could be adult contemporary. Wherever they could get some play, I wanted to have a hit for that format. So I think, again, I might have mentioned last time that I uh, talked with Peebo and I said, you know, we got all these great songs, but I need a cover version of one song to sort of open the door. And he came back at me and he said, how about Show and Tell, the Al Wilson song? Great. And he was so confident in it, he'd already laid down a basic track of it, which he sent me a, a cassette of. I played it, yeah, let's go, let's do this. So that was the lead single from this album. It went to number one on the R&B charts. It also did pretty well in the pop world. And then the follow-up single was All My Love, which was the title of the album. And we also had Lover's Paradise, which was also a single. So I didn't get five singles out of it, but um, I was able to, line up a couple duets, one with Deatra Hicks and another with Jasmine Guy, who was big on the TV show, uh, The Cosby Show at the time, the spinoff where the daughter, Lisa Bonet, went to college. Um, so this album did really well. It, it, I think it went gold or close to it. So that was all great. And um, I was working tight, very close and tightly with a guy named Tom Wally, who subsequently became uh, head of A&R at uh, Interscope Records after he left Capitol, but, um, and, and now is at Concord. He's sort of a, a lifer and really still in the game, very strong. And I had this band, band this uh, three Latina women who uh, a friend of mine, his dad managed the spinners and um, he came at me with these three girls and they were called the triplets. And uh, I had them sort of in motion at Capitol. I was ready to sign them. I had a guy named Steve Barry, B-A-R-R-I lined up to produce them along with a guy named Tony Peluso. Steve had done everything from rote secret agent man uh, produced a ton of Motown records, uh, Smokey, a ton of hits for all sorts of people. Uh, it started out in the early 60s in a band called the Fantastic Baggies with a guy named P.F. Sloan, who went on to subsequent hits, wrote Eve of Destruction and a number of other big records. Um, so at any rate, I had these three Latina girls 
and I wanted to sign them to Capital, and we had a showcase. They we flew them out, and I got the okay from Tom Wally, and yeah, we're going to sign them. This is great, you know. So this is my first signing. I, I'd done the Peebo project. They were pleased with me. I'd found hits for people. Now they said, okay, we're going to give you a shot. Let, let's let these three Latinas be your first signing. So, okay, and, great. Did you just pull them out of one of those tapes that people submit? Or? Uh, yes and no, a little bit. I mean, because I had a relationship with their manager, he had kind of steered it to me. And then once I heard it, I went, yeah, let's let's go. So so I um, I was all ready to sign them. I mean, we were in the process of, you know, starting uh, contract negotiations and all that stuff when I get a phone call from Tom, excuse me, Tom Wally, who says, uh, hey, can you come into my office? And I'm wondering, did I do something wrong? Is he pissed off? What, uh, so I go into his office with a little bit of fear and trepidation that maybe something didn't work out or whatever. And I said, uh, he looked really glum and downcast. I said, man, are you okay? What's wrong? He says, I just got let go. I said, what? He said, yeah, there's regime, regime change and I'm out of here. And I said, that's not great news. You know, I'm sad for you. What are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to take some time off. I got a little uh, time I want to spend with my family. And I said, well, I, I feel bad for you, but I got to ask you this question. What should I do with this Latina act? And he said, put them in your back pocket and you're not, you're not going to want to be here much longer because he gave me sort of the lay of the land. And the problem with major record labels, especially at this point, period of time was there was a lot of turnover and every two, three, four years there'd be a new president at the label. And each new president would want his guys. And AR being as an important aspect of the overall music uh, production uh, world, the first person anybody would hire when they came in as a new president would be a new head of AR. So um, Joe Smith, who was a legendary character from Warner Brothers and then Electra, he was sort of the chairman of, of Capital at the time. They were searching for a president, but in the meantime, he made this guy, this Englishman named Simon Potts, head of A&R. And it's not that I didn't get along with Simon, you know, we got along fine, but he had his own agenda, and his agenda wasn't exactly my agenda. So at any rate, um, I'm like, now what? You know, I'm still finding songs and doing what I do. But then I got a call one day from one of my best friends, a guy named Ed Eckstein, who's a legendary uh, music executive, uh, started Wing Records, signed Vanessa Williams, Tony, 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 Brian McKnight. Um, and had worked with Quincy Jones for years prior to moving into Mercury in the corporate record world. He and I were very close and he said, hey man, I got Lakers Bulls tickets tonight. Do you wanna to go to the Lakers game? And that's like, you know, hey, I've got a ticket to heaven. You wanna come with me and check out heaven? Yeah, sure. So this was 
in the heyday of the Lakers and Showtime. Michael. Yeah, it was it was the stuff. So I said, yeah, sure, man. He said, look, uh, I'm going to be in Hollywood. I'll swing by and pick you up. Meet me in front of Capitol at 6.30. Okay. He's so, Billy Eckstein's son? Yeah, he's the son of Billy Eckstein. And his brother, Guy Eckstein, also rose up in the ranks and did a lot of great signings at Verve, including signing the trumpet player, Chris Chris Bodie. Um, so at any rate, Ed picks me up. We get in the car. We're in the car like literally two minutes. And he says, so are you ready to leave uh, Capitol and come with me? And I said, well, where are we going? And he said, they just made me president of Mercury Records. I was like, hello. Yes. <laughs> What's the scene? He says, well, I need a West Coast guy and you're going to be it. Great. And then I told him about the the three Latina girls, and we listened to their tape on the way to the Laker game. By the time we got to the Laker game, he said, you're hired, they're signed, let's go. Okay, great. So I call up my friend who manages them and say, okay, I'm leaving here, we're going to Mercury Records, and I want to take the girls with me. Fantastic. Okay. So... I leave Capital. I go to Mercury. Two, three, four months later, we've signed the, the girls who are now christened the triplets because they were actual triplets. Um, their mom was a fairly wealthy um, sort of debutante, rich woman from the States who had gone down to San Miguel de Allende in Mexico for to get a divorce. And she fell in love with her limo driver, eventually married him. Bam, they triplets come out. So these girls are bilingual. They have what I think is one of the best singing blends, which is what I call sibling harmony. The Everly Brothers, uh, Heart, uh, four or five other acts that are brother and sister, you know, three sisters, two brothers, whatever. When you put siblings together, there's a closeness in their vocal, not only inflection, but in their ability to harmonize. So these girls had harmonies to die for, just incredible. So now the key is to find them hit songs because Again, I'm a pro in the R part of A&R, the repertoire. So I start talking to all my friends, songwriter friends, and we start gathering songs. And in the process, we also set up a couple of uh, collaborative situations, one of which was with an act I later went on to sign called Lowen and Navarro, Eric Lowen and Dan Navarro, who had written We Belong for Pat Benatar, a huge, huge record. And they were sort of songwriters who were transitioning into being sort of a singer-songwriter duo. So I'm driving the girls over to um, Dan Navarro's house in in suburb here of LA over in Eagle Rock. And they're having a hard time coming up with titles. And they say, look, you need a title that people can relate to and that is sexy and saleable. And I said, 
You girls are extremely attractive. Um, why don't we, well, how about a song like Stay All Night or You Don't Have to Go Home Tonight or something that is sort of seductive and a woman telling a guy like, hey, I dig you, let's, let's do this. So they said, wow, that's a great idea. So they went in and they wrote a song called You Don't Have to Go Home Tonight. They had a demo cassette. We put it in the cassette player on the way back to their hotel where they were staying. And this is like, even as a demo, I'm like, this is a fucking hit. This is unbelievable. So now we got the lead single. I got them a song from Martin Page, who'd written These Dreams for Heart. Um, a lot of different uh, songwriters, uh, people in town that I put them with. And it took about, I'm going to say six months, eight months. But in 1981, we released their first album called Thicker Than Water. And uh, there might be some glare on here, but there they are. Yep. Three sisters, Diana, Sylvia, and Vicky Viegas. Uh, we put out the first single. It got more ads at radio that week than any other record. It just blew up. Um, now, everything was going great, and we were thinking, wow, hit, hit, hit. But uh, all of a sudden, we start getting word of another three female act, two of whom are sisters, called Wilson Phillips. And this was Charlie Koppelman's first act on his new label, SBK. And this is in the era of uh, independent promotion. So at that point in the game, if you wanted a top 10 record, it was going to cost you a minimum of a minimum of $100,000, top 10 pop record. Top five to $300,000. Top to the top of the charts, a number one record, it could cost as much as a half a million dollars just in promotion, okay? That isn't even the video, nothing else. So all of a sudden, uh, we're getting ads on, we're added on MTV. We make a video. Everything's going great, great, great. Then all of a sudden, Wilson Phillips hits. And as beautiful as these women are and were, uh, China Phillips, you know, pretty, pretty attractive young, young lady. And with the legacy of, you know, Brian Wilson's daughters, along with John Phillips' daughter, uh, along with SBK spending money like it was water, all of a sudden, Despite getting more ads in radio, everything on an upward, you know, spike, Wilson Phillips just like boom, boom, boom. And before you know it, Wilson Phillips has the number one record and we sort of peak at number 10. Okay. So a little disappointed, you know. Da, da, da. So then uh, we put out the second single, which was called Sunrise. And that was more of a mid-tempo adult contemporary song. And we got that to number five on the adult contemporary charts. And then we did maybe one other single off of here. But in the meantime, I was thinking, you know, these girls are bilingual. 
why don't we do the album in Spanish as well? And this is pre-Enrique Iglesias, Ricky Martin, pre-any of that. Gloria Estefan is the only act who had really taken off Spanish at this point. So I call up the head of International, uh, and I said, look, we had two top 10 singles. Why don't I have them do the uh, vocals in Spanish, and we'll release a Spanish album? So the head of International, this is a Polygram Records in 1981, says to me, why would you want to do that? And I'm like, well, because they're Spanish, because it's a huge market, because we, oh, no, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I said, really? And she said, yeah, I don't know. I, and no, I'm not interested. Meanwhile, I'm talking with a guy, a friend of mine over at Capitol Records, and he says, we think it's a great idea, and we will record. We will pay for the recording in Spanish, and we will release it. And even again, two two different labels with the same act. And here's the Spanish version of the triplets. So this had a fairly good run at Spanish Hispanic radio. So I'd say between. Uh, English and Spanish, we probably got close to a gold record out of these two you, girls. You said that was 81 or 91? Oh, no, excuse me, 91. 91. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 91. I'm sorry. So at any rate, um, this is going along well. We're getting ready to make the second album. And um, the powers that be at Mercury sort of decided, you know, we're never going to beat Wilson Phillips at this indie promotion game. You know, they're, they're spending money like it's water. We love these girls. We think they're great. But just as we're about to start recording, they say, no more triplets. We're dropping the triplets. I'm like, oh, man. And, and this is an act with some, you know, some cachet, some sales, everything else. They just looked at everything and said, nah. So Were they able to get out and tour at all? They did. They opened up for Kenny Loggins on a number of dates. Um, you know, they they did pretty well out on the road. I saw them here at the Greek Theater, and uh, one of the girls in the group was this absolutely gorgeous gal named uh, Diana. And um, guys are you know, calling out in the audience, "I love you, Diana." You know, stuff like that. So they had again. Like if you parked your car in LA and it was a Hispanic um, guy who'd take your keys to park the car, I'd say to him, hey, do you want a triplets album? He knew who they were. He like, are you kidding me, man? Yeah, sure. You know, he'd take it. He was totally in. Um, so it was a source of pride, especially in the Latino community here in LA, that these girls did so well and made some noise. I was bitterly disappointed when all this went down. But in the meantime, I'd found a gal over in England, a very young singer-songwriter who was trained as a ballet dancer, but had an incredible lyrical gift. And her name was Lauren Christie. So here is her first album. I signed her to Mercury. I went over to England a number of times, brought her to the States to sign her and make her record with Tony Peluso. And um, 
we had a top 10 single uh, at adult. We had, wow, we actually had like two top 10 singles at adult contemporary radio. She was nominated for uh, Best New Artist at Adult Contemporary at the American Music Awards. She was 22, 23 years old. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful woman. We got her on the Jay Leno show. She was, again, she went out with Kenny Loggins and one or two other acts and did some touring. Uh, everything was going well with her. She was very, um, how would I say it, British and sort of, classy in the way that say Lord or Ellie Fanning or some of these artists that are out now. She was sort of like that. So we're getting ready to make the second album. And on the first album, she said, no guitars. I want, I don't want any screaming guitars, everything subdued, keyboards, acoustic, stand-up bass, blah, 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 very low key. Okay, great. So now she's lived in America for a year, year and a half and seen the record biz and Alanis Morissette was taking off. And she said, <coughs> I want guitars. I want to shred on this next album. And I tried to talk to her and say, look, we made all these inroads at, at Adult Contemporary. Why don't we stay on that path? And she said, eh, Adult Contemporary, it's not very hip. I want to be more hip, more cutting edge. Said, okay. So we started her second album. It was called Breed. Here is that album. Uh, this was again on Mercury. And um, again, edgier, a lot more guitars, you know, all this stuff. And as much as I love a lot of the songs on this album, there are a lot of great, great songs because she's a gifted lyric writer. Um, the adult contemporary crowd felt sort of like, oh, kick to the curb. Like, why did you leave us, you know? And the alternative rock crowd, she was now trying to get on K-Rock and various hip alternative stations. They were like, yeah, but you were just an AC artist. How can you now be an alternative rock artist? So needless to say, the stars didn't align perfectly. And once again, Adios muchachos, she was dropped. So at this stage in the game, I had what I called a mid-rock crisis. I was in my mid-40s, um, grunge was coming in. And even though, again, I've, as I said before, anybody who has a hit, I am proud of, I, you guys are real, blah, blah, blah. But grunge wasn't talking to me. It wasn't as blues-based as a lot of what I'd come up with. It had more of a attitude-based uh, lyrical content. And look, I'm not gonna lie. I thought Nirvana was great. I, and I knew it was over when I went to the, Amer uh, no, the MTV Awards and Nirvana played on the MTV Awards and followed Def Leppard. And Def Leppard was Mercury's big rock act. So I'm there, you know, rooting Def Leppard on. And they were really good. But then Nirvana comes on, and it was like the changing of the guard. You could literally see it before your eyes, you know. Grunge is the new thing. Okay. So I have this mid-rock crisis, as I called it. And at the same time this is happening, a new radio format is coming called Americana. 
or Triple A, it became known as. And it was mainly um, small stations in small markets, with the exception of maybe Chicago, uh, San Francisco. It, it was, I'm going to say, more NPR-based, you know, small NPR stations, along with a smattering of Boulder, Colorado, Charlotte, North Carolina, sort of hip college towns, and then Chicago, San Francisco, uh, FMU in New York, two or three other stations around the country. So I came up with this idea to sort of sign singer-songwriter-based acts, and I talked with my friend Ed Eckstein, and he said, well, we've got a label that's dormant called Parachute, which is a, a good name, sort of like Asylum, uh, to put these type of acts. Why don't we reactivate that label as an adult singer-songwriter, AAA like, format? Okay, great. So I go back to the guys who I put with the triplets to write, uh, we don't have to, you don't have to go home tonight. And um, I talked with them and said, here's the good news. I want to sign you. Here's the bad news. Total budget, all in. $30,000. This is 1994. You know, when people are spending a half a million dollars on an album, I'm offering these guys 30 grand. And they're like, uh, uh, how are we supposed to pay everybody? How do we pay our lawyer? How we pay? I say, this is what I got. And my whole mindset was the cheaper you made the record, the maybe you don't go gold platinum, maybe you only sell a hundred thousand units. But if you make a record for thirty thousand dollars, spend another thirty promoting it, so now you're sixty grand in. Say you sell ten thousand copies, or no, let's say fifty thousand copies at five dollars profit to the label per copy. That's two hundred and fifty grand. You've just you know generated. So I talked with Eric Lowen and Dan Navarro, and they agree, and we get this producer named Jim Scott, who went on to win a Grammy with uh, the, oh, shoot, I'm going to have a hard time remembering their names. Uh, the gals who, Nath, Natalie and Maines, who spoke up against Bush, I'm not proud of Texas. What were their names? I can't remember. At any rate, Jim Scott went on with them. He worked with Tom Petty. He was a name, name, name engineer moving into production. So we signed Lowen and Navarro and made this album called Broken Moon. And uh, this had a number of songs called All Is Quiet, uh, Maybe Later, Broken Moon things like that, that all became top 10 triple A records. And one of them crossed over to adult contemporary. So, you know, even though everything wasn't uh, selling, you know, like on Bon Jovi levels, the company was making money. So they said, hey, you, you like doing this and you're good at this. Um, go ahead, sign a few more of these for 30 grand each. So there was another band from Pasadena here called Jump in the Water. I signed them. There's their album. 
This album is so good, it is staggering. But as I said earlier, we went up against Wilson Phillips with uh, the triplets. We went up against the Counting Crows with this record. This record, the main guy in this act is a guy named Steve Moose, and phenomenal writer, singer, everything. This is sort of an acoustic-y band vibe with harmonies like the Beach Boys. Amazing harmonies, but mandolin, guitars, acoustic bass, blah, blah, blah. So um, this did, again, really well at AAA radio, but what happened was one of the guys, the main guy in the group was a real estate broker in Pasadena. And he had visions of, I'm a record star, I'm gonna to make tons of money. Oh yeah, okay, great. You know? So it was time for them to go out on the road. And I said, okay, you know, ready to go out on the road. And he says, well, how much are we getting paid each week? And I said, per diem. And he says, what's per diem? And I said, $30 a day. We're, we'll pay your travel and your hotels, but that's it. We're not, you're, you're playing little clubs. You're not generating, nobody knows who you are. So he does the math in his head, $210 a week. I'm making, you know, 20 grand a month selling real estate. Why do I want to do this? Answer, I don't. So before the group even started, it sort of broke up. But what we did was we took the mandolin player and this guy, Steve Moose, and we put them in small clubs in Boulder and various, again, AAA markets. And we made some noise and, you know, some stuff happened, but it wasn't anywhere near what it should have, could have, might have been if I'd had a real act to promote. But... For any of you out there who love sort of Americana, the band, people like that, this jump in the water, it's called Nothing Else Will Do, great. So the same time I'm doing that, I do a how second. Many, how many pieces were in that band? Four-piece band. Uh, and it, again, they very understated acoustic-based music, just incredible. The same time I'm doing the jump in the water, I'm doing the second Lowen and Navarro album called Pendulum. These guys now at this point in time are doing really well. They're playing, you know, selling out 1,200 seats in Chicago, in DC at the Birchmere, doing two shows, 600 seats a night. And they've got some momentum. So hey, Tom, we do this. So when you're in that role, though, doing what you're doing with these groups, yeah, how, how much on a daily basis or weekly basis are you interacting with other people or departments within the label? Well, here's the thing about A&R that a lot of people don't realize. First, you sign the act. Then you, you know, find the songs, find the producer, oversee the budget, make the record, master the record, sequence, master the record. Now you got finished product ready to play for people. So now you play it for everybody and you are the internal manager at the label for the act. They have what they call a product manager who lines up media buys and, and you know, in stores around touring and, and publicity campaigns, you know, sort of coordinates. 
but you're sort of the quarterback internally and you've got to work the promotion guys and and the sales guys and all the various aspects of the then record business each department you you better know somebody and you better have a good relationship with them and fortunately i did so i could talk with the head of promotion and the head of AAA promotion and how what do you think should be the next single uh say there's a big convention can we get them at the convention to play blah 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 so doing this triple a world i'm quarterbacking these various acts everything's not going through the roof but everybody's making money i mean again it's not bon jovi money but it's a profit okay mm -hmm. so they keep saying keep going and i go okay movies yeah so next up uh i i had a friend in new york named alex forbes who is a songwriter of some renown wrote don't rush me which is a song i found through her and placed with taylor dane had a number two pop hit with her and she would do these songwriter uh meetings in new york once a month where various songwriters would come to her flat play their newest song and everybody would critique the song and it was sort of a way for up-and-comers to kind of get feedback, meet other writers, blah, blah, blah. It was sort of like a salon for songwriters. So I was there one night, and uh, these were in New York, and I really uh, just, how would I say it, otherworldly presence comes into the room. And everybody's playing and singing, and she's kind of sitting back and, taking it all in, not really uh, contributing a whole lot in terms of critique, but but being very positive and, and excited to be there. And so she says, after everybody's done their bit, Alex says, well, we have one last person here. Uh, this is a woman named Jane Kelly Williams. Um, Jane, do you want to do a song? Okay. So this otherworldly presence pulls out her guitar starts singing and within about two three minutes i look around everybody is spellbound they're just like oh my god who is this okay so she finishes her song and i go you are incredible you are absolutely amazing now the first time i saw her was while i had lauren christie and i was signing big name acts and you know trying to do that now i had this parachute label so i came back to jane and i said you are another level of talent entirely i want to sign you to a record deal and she was like oh wow you know fantastic thirty thousand dollars <laughs> okay i guess <laughs> so I had to go around and find a producer who would work with her for that little money. And I found Ben Wish, who was a producer who had just come off Mark Cohn walking in Memphis, had a number one hit with that and Grammy kind of prior to that using video cassettes as the storage capacity for music. And you could do things with sort of what you know uh, all the digital technology of today has morphed into 
this was the the baby step for that stuff. Now we're talking, you know, 25 years ago, whatever. So he says, why don't we record this this in this church that Jane worked in in um, Manhattan? Great. Can we get permission? The acoustics are incredible, blah, blah, blah. Great. So he Jane talks with the pastor, minister at the church, and he says, so long as you don't interfere with church services, which are Sunday during the week, sure. So we record this album, Jane Kelly Williams' Tapping the Wheel is the name of this album. If you go on Amazon and read the reviews, people compare it to Joni Mitchell Blue. Um, this is an amazing album. Um, Jane was is from Noonan, Georgia, small town outside of Atlanta. And when she was in high school, she was in a, a duo group with Alan Jackson. So she had pedigree, she had all of the above, but um, a very understated person, very spiritual person, and the whole sort of, how do I say it, uh, music biz machinery she had a hard time dealing with. It was a little too much at times for her to take in. And there were times I had to talk her off the ledge, you know, like, well, Jane, this is how it works. But I don't know. I just don't feel right about it. No. Sweetest woman on the planet. I say, Jane, this is it. Like, so she wrote a song on here called Show Me How to Catch a Fish. And um, we'd send, whenever we finished an album, we had somebody at the label who would send it around to all the different films, TV supervisors. So there was a, a movie coming out, Jennifer Aniston's first movie after leaving uh, Friends was a movie called Picture Perfect. And uh, the film music supervisor heard this song, Show Me How to Catch a Fish, and it ended up getting in the movie under the opening credits, which is a huge placement. So Jane saw the movie, called me up, and she said, Tom, I just don't know what to do. And I said, Jane, what's the problem? I, I just don't know if, if my music is right for this movie. And I said, Jane, not only is your music right for this movie, this is the perfect platform to launch your career. And I'd say, whatever fears you have about doing this, just swallow your pride, whatever, let's just do this. So she did. And we were able to get some play off of that. But she also had a song called Breaking Into the Past, which was about meeting an old lover, old boyfriend or whatever, who was anxious to get the uh, relationship restarted. And Jane as the singer, the main character in the song was, no, that's okay. But the whole concept, breaking into the past, unbelievable. So at any rate, that was a top 10 adult contemporary record. Jane, I saw numerous times. And that same quality she had of sort of just spellbinding an audience. She went out with Lowen and Navarro and they played the Birchmere, which in Washington, DC, kind of a folk 600 seat club. Jane comes out, just her on guitar and her husband, who's a stand up bassist on bass, 
and people are talking, and you know how it is, opening act, nobody knows who it is, they're eh, talking. So she starts playing, and slowly everybody gets quiet. By the end of the, the, the set, she did a song about her brother called Carry Him, which is probably one of the most moving songs I've ever heard in my life. Her brother had a genetic disorder, sort of like MS or cerebral palsy or one of those type of things. And it's sort of a, a hymn to God about her brother. And the lyric was, carry him for me because I don't have the strength. I need more strength to carry this person. That, that song she performs, I look around the audience at the Birchmere, people crying, crying, okay? Went from, who is this girl? Hey, want another drink? Yeah, to tears. Uh, Timothy White, who was the editor at Billboard at the time, loved Jane so much, and he wrote a huge feature about her. The, the song Breaking Into the Past, Top 10, Adult Contemporary, the, the film placement really helped propel for her. So that was all good. So now I got, okay, one more act I'm going to sign. Friend of mine in Philadelphia calls me up, and I found this girl in this band who play here in Philly. They're called Sojourn. Okay, what's the bag? Well, come on in and see them. So I go into Philly. They're playing at a small folk club, and there's a girl in the band who, again, has this incredibly pure voice, and they're all kids who grew up in Philly and knew each other, you know, since high school. Um, we start doing research on the band's name, Sojourn. It turns out they, some other Mormon band had the name Sojourn. So we had to change the name. We changed it to Gray-Eyed Glances, which came out of an Edgar Allan Poe poem, I think. And I recorded two albums with them. Uh, this is the first one. And in Philadelphia alone, this sold probably 10 to 15,000 copies just in the Philly, New Jersey area. Um, this was the time that bands like the October Project and sort of these ethereal kind of uh, Sarah McLaughlin-y type bands were out. And I got to do that album with them as well as one more album, this one here, which is called painted pictures uh now unfortunately while this album was being recorded and in the process of coming out um my friend ed Eckstein got a call from the powers that be upstairs at uh, mercury records and they said adios muchacho you're bye bye so i'm like oh i've seen this movie before so Fortunately, was it, was it purely because the numbers weren't being hit that they wanted? It was a combination of factors. Um, some of it had to do with numbers. Some of it, believe it or not, you know, and I don't want to cast any aspersions here, but and a black guy, one of the first heads of major labels who was black. And despite his pedigree with Billy Eckstein and Quincy Jones and all that stuff, um, there were certain artists at the label who didn't feel they were getting the treatment they deserved 
because they were white and he was black. Mm -hmm. And Vanessa Williams was getting tons of love and Tony, Tony, Tony and Brian McKnight and all these acts he'd signed, Black Sheep, uh, two or three others. And so there was sort of this weird, almost reverse racism, discrimination, where the white rock acts sort of felt like he wasn't, you know, looking out for them. So it was a political thing. They gave him a custom label. He kind of went away, <clears throat> but he still had a foot in the door. He kind of saw all this coming, and he said to me, there's a weird vibe here. I don't know what's going to happen, but I feel that I'm going to be gone soon. And I said, well, what should I do? And he said, well, I'll tell you what, your contract is up in two months. Let's get your contract through because you do these contracts two, every two years. And if you were doing well, they renew. If you weren't, bye-bye. He, and I thank him to this very day, got my contract through, got it signed, and literally two months after the contract was signed, delivered, he was gone. So now they bring in a new guy, and the new guy wants his guy in. He doesn't want me, eh, let's get my guy in. So I was in the process of trying to sign a guy named Martin Sexton. Now, again, this is all singer songwriter -y, folky, uh, you know, acoustic -y type music. Martin Sexton has gone on to become a legend in that world. Uh, he did three albums for Atlantic um, and did quite well. He had a song called Diner that was used in a television show and got a lot of play. He tours regularly and has an ongoing career. So I'm trying to sign this guy who is an amazing singer, phenomenal singer. How, how, how many total A&R people did they have at the label? They probably had about total, I'm going to say 10 or 12, something like that. Maybe six in New York or six in L.A., something like that, 10, 12, something like that. And again, it was all compartmentalized. There was the urban A&R guy, and I was more the pop A&R guy, and there was the alternative A&R guy, and the hard rock A&R guy, blah, blah, blah. So I'm now miserable because my guy is left, but I'm trying to sign this guy, Martin Sexton. And I put him with this writer friend of mine named Ned Claflin, and Ned ended up writing a number of songs with this guy, Martin Sexton. And I'm like, oh boy, I'm gonna get this on the label. This would be great. So I'm in, again, negotiations, trying to sign Martin Sexton. And they have a thing called a key man clause, which say you're an artist and you wanna sign with me, but you, you wanna sign with me. You like me, trust me, we have a rapport. So say there's a big shift in the label, you know, hierarchy, you don't want me to go away. So they would write in what they call a key man clause where if I was fired, the artist would be free to go wherever they wanted to go and they'd be dropped and no harm, no foul. So Martin asked for this key man clause when negotiating his contract. And lo and behold, 
it didn't happen. He didn't get signed. And putting two and two together after the fact, I realized that the writing was on the wall for me. They didn't want to sign him and put in the money, time, and effort to record an album only to have me go away and him go away. So that was when I realized uh, my days were numbered at Mercury Records as an A&R guy. So um, Ed was gone. It took maybe another six to eight months for me to be gone because I had the Lauren Christie album and the Grey Eye Glances albums in the pipeline ready to come out. So they held on to me and I also had a contract in force. So they had to pay me anyway. You were a lame duck. I was a lame duck. So under underline the lame part, I was like, oh man, this is so screwed. With that, it's time to wrap up part two of this three-part music industry insider discussion with Mr. Tom Vickers, the man who's by his own admission learned how to swim with the sharks without getting eaten and without becoming one himself. A big thanks to him once again for spending the time and sharing his engrossing experiences on Truth and Rhythm. A sincere thank you, as always, to our listeners and viewers on Truth and Rhythm. Before, be sure to look out for upcoming episodes and catch up with previous installments at FunkinStuff.net on YouTube, iTunes, and other leading providers. We want to hear from you. Drop me an email at scottg at FunkinStuff.net. Let me know who else you want to see on the show, what you like about it, maybe what you'd like to see change, anything at all. Hearing a lot more from the viewers and the listeners, and it's a blast. So keep them coming. Lastly, subscribe on YouTube. We need that support. Subscribe through the Funkin' Stuff channel to Truth and Rhythm. Show everybody that you support these artists and the incredible music that they made. Keep the funk alive. And so with that, as always, this is Scott Dr. Jiggs Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. Thank you.